You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, community radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. From WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, this is the Magical Mystery Tour. beginning the end so where to start this is a journey into sound brought to you in living color on wtdr there is nothing wrong with your television set we are controlling transmission for the next hour sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear you are about to participate in a great adventure you are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind on WTDR. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Let me warn you that I say what I think. Say what I think. Say what I think. I'm a complete individual. I see the individual. I see the individual. I'm against communism. Capitalism, fascism, Nazism, against everything and I've often wondered what it would be like to be happy 24 hours a day, 24 hours a day, 24 hours a day. I realize what I'm about to say comes as a great shock. However, using great presence of mind, I'm counting on you to respond appropriately. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy.
Tony Epstein, it's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Today, we're going to dive deeper into the realm of dream work and consciousness with a follow-up interview with dream work expert Sivia Gover. Sivia Gover is the director of the Institute for Dream Studies and the author of The Mindful Way to a Good Night's Sleep, How to Use Dream Work, Meditation, and Journaling to Sleep Deeply and Wake Up Well. It's great to have you back. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here with you. Last time, we had a really nice overview of the realms of dreams and dream work and also how everything in our dreams is an aspect of ourselves. So I thought we could go into other ways of using dream work to make our lives more lucid and also to go into some more advanced ways of understanding dreams, particularly in relation to our waking experience. That sounds great. And also to talk about any particular aspects of dreaming that you find particularly fascinating and would like mm. to talk about. <laughs> since you're That covers a lot of ground, but I, I'll try to rein myself in. <laughs> well, actually, I don't want to rein you in at all, if possible, yes. because you're the expert in this area, or at least you have a lot more concentrated experience in this yes. realm. So yes. I would really like to tap into that and make good use of that with our time. Great. The dream realm is fascinating. We tend to think of it as something completely separate and other than waking reality. But there are various cultures around the world that don't see things that way. There's the shamanic understanding that the world is as we dream it. The Eastern philosophical 
understanding is that we create the perception of our waking world unconsciously by projecting our past conditioning onto the canvas of our mind. And then there's the Aboriginal, the Australian Aboriginal dream time and the way that they sing, they have this notion of singing the world into existence in each moment. Well, I think one of the most important things in what you just said is that in our culture, and we just have to use that term broadly because there are so many cultures within our culture, we have separated ourselves off from dreams and written them off as bizarre and, you know, all that stuff. And it is a shame because all of the things that you're saying reflect deep wisdom that's been accumulated over millennia in terms of the power of our dreaming minds, the power of our minds in general. And you mentioned shamanic culture, and one of the interesting things there is, you know, a shaman will go into a kind of dream, a journey. It's a vision, but they do it usually, not always, but usually when they're awake. And from that vision that they have, they will access healing for individuals in the culture. So it's a very useful, practical bit of dreaming. But what the point I wanted to make right here when we're talking about all the separation that we do as a culture is they don't necessarily distinguish between a vision had awake in a journey or a vision had asleep in a dream. There are definitely different distinguishing features of different kinds of dreams, you know, whether they're dreams that need a lot of attention or that carry healing information or don't. But there's not that distinction between the daytime and the nighttime dream. So there are so many different ways to look at dreaming, and we're just sort of stuck culturally. So I love that you have sort of opened it up and looked at what all these different cultures see. There are so many directions to go in from there, but that's a great starting place. Yeah, and there's lucid dreaming, there's dream yoga. Yeah, and they're all connected, really. Mm-hmm. So let, let me start with what I think is helpful and useful. So, you know, we, we have two ways of going when we talk about dreams. You know, I go out and I talk about dreams a lot when I'm out talking about my book or leading dream groups or, or workshops or doing talks. And so either, you know, you get sort of stuck in this little box of just trying to convince people that dreams are worth looking at, or you can go so far out there into extraordinary experiences that are possible that it's almost overwhelming. So I think giving people a little practical knowledge about dreams. So what can you do with the fact that perhaps we are creating our world through our dreams? And perhaps we're doing that unconsciously because the dreams are creating stories and narratives and experiences that we're stepping into perhaps in our day-to-day life. But If we're doing it unconsciously, we are not empowered in our waking lives to create the kind of life that we want to live or the kinds of values and experiences that we want to promote. So I like to talk about how people can start. You know, you can become an expert in dreams, and I love it when people read deeply into all the different cultural manifestations. But on a day-to-day level, people can start being more conscious of the fact that they are dreaming and also with our thoughts during the day with the stories we're telling awake and asleep and dreaming we are i truly believe and see evidence of 
creating the realities we step into. So how can we be more conscious and use some of these tools from lucid dreaming, some of the things that we've learned from dream yoga to empower our lives to make sleep and dreaming a conscious, I call it a spiritual experience. It's an experience I like people to consider treating with reverence instead of just sort of falling on the pillow and whatever happens, happens. And a more integrated experience. Yes. Tell me what you are thinking about that. Well, all the things that you were just saying, I, I was reflecting on as I was driving in this morning, how, you know, we have this ongoing narrative about the world that we're perceiving. And usually, most of the time, for most people, we totally take it for granted as being real and that it's out there and that we have no direct input into its creation. Whereas what I've been learning for many years is that it's literally emerging from all of our past conditioning and the narratives, the stories that we have developed throughout our lives and that we approach life as if it's something that happens to us and that we're sort of like a, a victim of. It just happens to us and there's nothing we can do about it. And what I've been learning and what, what you're just suggesting is that we can actually see it very, very different, virtually 180 degrees the opposite. Yes. So, yeah, very powerful what you're saying and very powerful for people to take in that we don't have to just be passive. So technically and, and literally, when you go to sleep, you know, you're not just lying down and then something's going to happen to you. You're going to sleep maybe, maybe you're not. You're going to dream maybe, maybe you're not. Or you're going to dream, but you don't remember them maybe, maybe you're not. They're going to be good maybe, they're going to be scary maybe, whatever. But when we start being more active, even in that process, it teaches us to be more active during the day. How do we want to go to sleep? What is our purpose in remembering and recording our dreams? To really start looking at your intentions, what values do you want to bring to the nighttime? You know, are you going to be receptive to the mystery of dreaming? Or are you going to sort of gird yourself against it and just do everything you can up until the minute you fall asleep to avoid facing the fact that you're going into a new state of consciousness that you don't maybe understand and so it maybe scares you a little. When you do dream work on your dreams, so you, you receive the dreams that come and you start to welcome each one, whether it's scary or blissful or something in between, you welcome each one and examine it, you have the opportunity to learn about, so there's several levels. You know, on the first level, you get to just see what's going on in there. And that is a revelation to most people. What's going on inside my mind? That's what the practice of mindfulness when we're awake is all about. You know, just the first level is just first to see it with non-judgmental, curious attention, Right. So most people are stopped right there with dreams. They're not even doing that much. Let me just look at them. Let me notice. What does that tell me about the quality of my thoughts, let alone the content? You know, are they racing? You know, are they steady? You know, does one dream last a while or does it keep jumping around? So we start to learn a little bit about our consciousness and then we start to work on the content of the dream 
And we talked about that last time, how every part of the dream represents a part of yourself and your experience. When you start to look at the dream like that, you become more friendly to every aspect of the dream, even the quote-unquote enemies in the dream, the attackers, the pursuers, because they're part of you. And that alone, that is the most basic thing I teach in dream work, and I teach it everywhere I go. And if we can take that concept alone into our dreams and also into our lives awake, it's radical. It's radically transformative. If I can see you as a projection of my own beliefs, it's not egotistical. It's actually the opposite because it starts to break down that dichotomy or that distinction between self and other. So it gives us an opportunity for profound empathy. That alone, that's the first little piece of dream work, change the individual, change the collective, change our entire experience of the world. Mm -hmm. As you were implying earlier, the way we relate to our dreams is very much the way we relate to our waking life. Exactly. Because if we're afraid, if we're girding ourselves against the darkness and the mysteries and we're, and we're uncomfortable with the unknown and uncertainty, then we're going to relate to our outer lives in the same way, and it's going to limit the possibilities for everything. That's exactly right, and very well said. You know, the way we relate to our dreams is how we relate to our waking lives, and it's so important to have an empowered stance an open, curious, non-judgmental, respectful, <laughs> empowered stance, awake and asleep. So to have the feeling that, and, and we get confused because maybe we think, oh, what this means is I need to change everything in my external environment. And that's what people do often when they start lucid dreaming. So for those who aren't familiar, lucid dreaming is when you're awake and aware within the dream while you're sleeping. You're awake to the fact that you're dreaming, but you are asleep and dreaming. And you're aware of the fact that you're dreaming and that you have volition, that you have choices, you can take action. So when most people start lucid dreaming, they start changing the dream environment. You know, they'll fly, they'll, you know, move things around, they'll change things, change the lighting in the room. It's fun and it's exciting and it's good practice to learn how to use your dream skills. But the most advanced state of lucid dreaming from a spiritual point of view is when you learn to just observe the dream, to be a witness and watch consciousness unfold. And that's a very different experience than where most people start out dreaming, which is the dream's just happening and they're not taking any action. And that's fascinating because what you were just describing as the more advanced approach to lucid dreaming is the same as the spiritual approach to observing our waking reality of exactly. observing without judging and without trying without, and without an agenda. Exactly. Exactly. And obviously, you know, sometimes people hear that and they're like, no, 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 you know, there are things that we need to do to change the world. We need justice and empathy. Yes, yes, yes. But until we get to a very peaceful place inside of ourselves, a very harmonious place, and that's where dream work can bring us, we need to be able to pick and choose our actions and take our actions with as much inner harmony as we can. Otherwise, we're going to create the same ripples, you know, Right, we're going to create In more waking problems. reality, mm -hmm. so, if, you know, if we're acting from anger, if we're acting from without perspective, 
we can make more trouble than we intend. So we need to cultivate wisdom before we yes. take action in the world. Exactly. And, you know, it's a bit, such an interesting conversation to be having right now. So much is happening out in the world. There's so many places where we need justice and compassion and empathy. And we can really learn about those qualities through dreaming. What's true justice? What's true compassion? What's true empathy? Detached from our overriding ego's agenda. So talk about how we can use dreaming in those ways. Okay. That's a great question. The first thing, the first important step is to think about what's our agenda for sleep and dreams. What do we want, you know, what values do we take into this? And some people might think, oh, you know, that sort of goes without saying. But it's important to have that sort of anchor. So to make yourself maybe some kind of mission statement for me, it's, you know, that I'm dreaming for health and wholeness in all realms, spiritual, psychological, physical, in the pursuit of the highest good. So, you know, if you're really going to get into a dream work practice, that's a big piece of it. And then to, you know, make some kind of an intentional routine for going to sleep and dreaming, doing some dream work on the dreams that you do have. And by dream work, I mean looking at them with interest and curiosity to see what they're showing you. And then also to do some of the analysis of, okay, if this is a part of myself, what parts of myself am I seeing in this dream? Give ourselves a new 360-degree perspective on our lives. Try to see the dream scenario from the point of view of each element in the dream, each character, and maybe even, you know, you can look at the objects in the dream. And then what you're doing is you're practicing skills that you're going to take with you on the road. You're practicing entering your day with intention. What values, what qualities do I want to cultivate during the day? And can I see every person I encounter as a part of myself and gain a new perspective? What does this conversation look like from their point of view? You know, you start to have a much more flexible mind, much more flexible mind, much less attached to your egoic will, which is a very useful thing, by the way, but it tends to run rampant in most of our lives. So, I mean, that's a little beginning. And I love, and I think it's worth repeating the importance of establishing and clarifying our intention into entering into dream work and our lives in general. That, Absolutely. And what you described was sort of like the Buddhist bodhisattva mm-hmm. principle or, or vow that we offer the benefit of the work we're doing to the highest good or for the benefit of, of the whole beings. universe, all beings Absolutely. and everything. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, we talk about intention. So this is a mindfulness technique or practice, and I apply it to dreams. But there's intention and there's attention. So we set our intention at the beginning of every action. You know, what's our intention? What qualities are we trying to cultivate? What is our aim? And then there's attention. Where do I want to place my attention? And in the dream... Once you start to become more lucid, that can be very powerful, too. You know, where do I want to explore? Where do I want to get curious? What do I want to learn here? So what am I going to pay attention to? And then also in our lives awake. So I want to pay attention to 
the good in the person that I'm sitting across from. You see how they're so linked, your intention and your attention. We could do this on so many different levels. Which dreams do I want to put my attention on? Some of us remember more dreams than we can, you know, fully investigate. So how do I choose which ones do I want to pay attention to? What do I want to pay attention to in dreams? I'm always looking in dreams for where are the sources of healing, where are the teachers? But it can also be very beneficial to pay attention to the conflict in the dream. You know, what parts of myself are at war here, right? What is this conflict about and what can I do to soften, to release my resistance? Can I pay attention to what, you know, there's always a negative and a positive polarity in everything. Can I find the opposite polarity of what I'm paying attention to? So always trying to seek balance. So if there's an attacker in the dream and it seems somebody who obviously all I want to do is squash and get rid of, Mm, can I soften the situation a little bit, calm this attacker down, find out what they really need, and find a way to balance the situation, bring in a little more harmony? Especially when we remember that, that that's just an aspect of ourselves. Exactly. Exactly. That should help us soften towards it and become friends with it. And, and also yeah. to realize that it's something that we haven't, come to terms with and as long as we haven't embraced it or integrated into ourselves in a healthy balanced way then we're not going to feel whole exactly the whole point of dream work is to come into harmony first with all the parts of ourselves. you know that's the first step we want to start to have a friendly attitude towards everything that comes up So one way to look at it is, you know, it's like you're on the seashore, right? And the ocean has just washed up, you know, the ocean waves have just washed up all this stuff, right? There are beautiful seashells. There's old plastic bags, right, when you're walking along the beach. What has the ocean washed up? And let me look at each one and consider it, you know, what's useful here, what's beautiful. What do I consider ugly, but is there a way I can look at this a little bit differently, just think of that plastic bag. There's a beautiful scene in the movie American Beauty where the young man in the movie has a video camera and is videoing everything in his environment. And he's videotaping a plastic bag, you know, a piece of trash, you know, just flying through the air. And it's one of the most beautiful scenes in the movie. So, you know, things we think of as trash. Well, what can I learn from that, right? Where did it come from? And investigating it with curiosity just makes it become beautiful. So anyway, so the dream is like just bringing up all this stuff from the ocean of our subconscious, right? Just bringing up all this stuff, all these opportunities to examine what are these treasures, right? And so it brings up our anger. It brings up our conflicts, our relationships, and it gives us the opportunity to hold each one in our attention for a little bit and really examine it closely from different angles, from different perspectives, and we can learn just so much from that, change and grow and release the things that are no longer serving us. And unravel the entanglements that exist with with each yeah. thing that we encounter. Yes, and one of the things I love about dreams is they just keep giving us a little update on how we're doing on the situation, right? Mm-hmm. So a situation that's been knotted up, entangled, 
you know, so you'll, you, you just keep having different dreams about it, and it shows you where you are in relationship to that issue now in your life. So if you have a recurring dream and you start to pay attention to it, try to figure out what it's trying to tell you, take a little action in your waking life in response, your next set of dreams, wherever they come, will give you an update on how you're doing. Like, oh, yeah, now that image in my dream is becoming more beautiful. Or an example from my own dream life is I have a fear of dogs awake. And so in my dreams, I'd have all these scary dogs attacking me. And over time, from working with that image, figuring out what it means to me, you know, learning from it, the dogs in my dreams have gotten much calmer much more friendly. Now they'll sometimes sit at my feet. Sometimes I'll be taking a walk with these dogs or they'll be protecting me. So I get to see how am I doing with my fears, with my phobias, or with my issues with anger. You know, these dogs give me a little update as they appear in my dreams. So you can sort of track your dream symbols that way. That's one reason I encourage people to write their dreams down because that way you can follow along and see what your dreams are telling you about your progress. Sivia Gover is the author of The Mindful Way to a Good Night's Sleep, How to Use Dream Work, Meditation, and Journaling to Sleep Deeply and Wake Up Well. She's also the director of the Institute for Dream Studies. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. can we relate to recurring dreams where we don't seem to be making progress? Like where we have a similar mm-hmm. recurring thing that has probably been happening for many, many, many years. Like I have one <laughs> where I find myself on the street in New York City and I'm completely naked and I'm just desperately searching for any way to hide. And for some reason, that, that dream has remained pretty much the same. And have you done some dream work on it? Have you sat and thought about it and what might that mean and what message might that dream be giving me about how I'm, you know, how I'm, I am in my waking life? I have. And mm-hmm. oddly enough, I keep returning back to the same dream. Mm-hmm. And... I've lived in communities where we walk around naked, Mm -hmm. and that doesn't seem like that would be such a difficult issue, but, um, I mean, obviously, it's a metaphor for feeling naked on other levels as well. Well, so very interesting, all the things that you're saying. I would have several questions for you. You don't have to answer them right now, but one would be, you know, you've studied the dream, but I wonder if you've taken action. When you say take action, what kind of action do you mean, for example? So if it were my dream, and I had dreamed about being naked in a public place, and I thought, oh, okay, so this maybe is telling me, and then I'm wanting to hide. So I'd say, what am I trying to hide about myself? What am I afraid to show? What vulnerability am I afraid to show? And then maybe I would pinpoint one, and then I would say, okay, well, let me experiment with that on a small scale. Let me share with somebody I really trust this part of myself that I'm normally trying to hide, right? Mm -hmm. So I'd start on a small scale, change something in my waking life, and then see if the dream changes at all. 
Well, the, the strange thing is that I've done a lot of that work, mm-hmm. and yet the dream still basically remains the same. Yeah. So there, there's got to be something in there. Exactly. There's something you're not getting yet. <laughs> and the key to what you might not be getting yet might be when you said, obviously. Obviously, the dream's telling me, you know, whatever the rest of that sentence was. Mm-hmm. Probably not. Right. I'm, if, you, I, if you think it's obviously, and especially since, you know, that's sort of the dream dictionary definition of what that sort of dream might mean. Mm-hmm. But you have a different... Um, experience of being naked in public than most people if you've been in communities where you can walk around naked. So you have a different association with what is otherwise a universal dream theme. Being naked in public is one of those dream themes that people have been experiencing, you know, for as long as dreams have been recorded. So we think, obviously, we know what those dreams mean. But Mm -hmm. for you, there's a different meaning because you have a different experience with being naked in public than most people. Right. I I would start with that obviously and just whatever you thought was obvious, take that off the table. Look in the opposite direction, perhaps. Yeah. Uh Yeah. Throughout my life, I've also had the dream that that I hear from many people of being chased. Yes. And that's a dream that has pretty much disappeared from my life, Mm. which is nice. So two things that might be helpful for you and, and your listeners to think about is you just brought up two of the universal dream themes, being chased and being naked in public. So when you have those dreams, you know that you're having a dream that sort of goes back to the primal nature of who we are as humans. Mm-hmm. And so what I look to, you know, that's what we have in common with everybody else. And what I always look to in those dreams is what's different. So your naked in public dream takes place in, is it New York City or a city? A bustling city where there's lots of people and there's nowhere to hide. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that setting in and of itself could be the clue to what this particular human phenomenon, you know, how it's manifesting in you. Huh, that's interesting. Um, so I was, yeah, yeah, I was because looking at what the little different element, the specific element is. In yeah, because I grew up in New York City, mm. and I now live in Vermont in the woods. Mm. And I'm not drawn to living in the city anymore. Mm. Very interesting, yeah. So that's definitely where you might want to dive in. And really, what are your associations with the city? What does the city mean to you? And then what does being naked specifically mean to you? So you have one example of a recurring dream that hasn't really budged, and then you have another example that has budged. Mm-hmm. So that's also interesting to see. Mm-hmm. And then on the flip side of that, there are what you refer to as transcendent dreams. Yes. And we touched on those last time. But I'm wondering how significant you consider them in terms of of what you find most fascinating and powerful about dreams and working with dreams. Yeah, I consider those dreams are very important, very, very important. So if you have, when we talk about transcendent dreams, you know, we're all the expert on our own dream life to some extent. We all have the potential to be the experts of our dream life if we become a little more literate in them, just paying a little more attention. They're our dreams. So the transcendent dreams, you know them when you have them. You know when you wake up from a dream, often there's a significant character or characters in the dream who are not known to you. You know, they're more sort of archetypal figures, meaning they represent big themes, the wise woman, the warrior, the teacher, although they might not come in traditional garb. 
or maybe the quality of the light in the dream is different. The clarity of the dream is so precise. You know when you've had one of these dreams. And these dreams often carry not only personal information for you, but also information for the collective. Maybe it's showing you how you should be sharing your gifts in the world or an important step that you're about to take in your life that will affect you and your family or your community more than just you or more than just this moment. You know, this might be a dream that's going to unravel for you over years instead of, you know, telling you how you're feeling this week or this night. So these dreams, definitely, if you're never going to write any other dreams down, definitely write down these transcendent dreams or these dreams that you sense might be. They might have a precognitive element in them, meaning that they might be showing you something that's going to turn up in the future in your waking reality. They might be carrying a message from an ancestor or, you know, a recently deceased friend or loved one. Yeah, they're, they're very important dreams. Definitely tell them to someone you trust who will share in your reverence for the dream and get their perspective. And look back from time to time, you know, again, I scribble a lot of dreams. I have so many dreams. Some of them just get scribbled in a notebook. I can barely read them. But when there's a dream like that, I'll either write it out neatly in a separate journal or I'll type it up on my computer so I make sure that I will have it so that I can refer back to it over the years. Mm -hmm. So I have a couple of transcendent dreams that I still remember really well, but this show's not really about me. I'm wondering if you might have an example of a particularly profound transcendent dream that you might like to share and perhaps go into how you've worked with it. Well, sure. I was going to argue with you about this. I mean, your dream, my dream, it really doesn't matter. True. Case because when you get to that level of dream, they're often important beyond just the individual. Mm-hmm. I have such an interesting relationship with my dreams. I have transcendent dreams often. And just as when anybody shares a dream... You end up sharing so much. So one dream, I actually just put this dream on my blog the other day. I'm going to use this dream as an example because it's a great example of why it's important to look closely at each dream. So I had a dream where I asked my dreams for a dream of bliss. I did a dream incubation. I wanted to experience true bliss. And that's one great thing you can do with your dreams is Once you get the hang of being a lucid dreamer or a conscious dreamer, you ask your dreams to show you something that you want to know more about. So I asked for a dream of bliss, and I got a dream in which I was standing at the threshold of my daughter's bedroom. My daughter was an older teenager at the time, and I had it carrying a basket of dirty laundry, and walking into her mess of a bedroom, because that's how my daughter's bedroom used to be. And all of a sudden, in the corner of the bedroom, I start seeing on her bureau a light glowing. And then I start to be conscious in the dream, like, oh, yeah, I had asked for a dream of bliss. Let me keep paying attention to that light. And the light starts to glow and change. And next thing I know, the dream environment fades. And all I'm experiencing is the beauty of that light as if from the inside out and floating on this wave of beauty, ecstasy, bliss. So I woke up from that dream. It was clearly 
a transcendent dream. I definitely experienced bliss beyond anything I'd ever experienced awake and had that beautiful experience to draw on, which was lovely. But here's the deal. I didn't stop there. I looked into the dream more deeply, and I had to wonder, why did my bliss dream take place in my daughter's filthy bedroom? (laughs) You know, like, why not, you know, a Caribbean beach, which is more like what I was expecting? And what that dream was showing me was that bliss isn't just about escape or, you know, jumping over what's difficult. At the time, my daughter was a teen who was acting out. We were having a very difficult, contentious relationship. And I was sort of starting to wall myself off from her because she was acting out in anger and really hurting me. And the dream showed me that in that relationship and in life in general, in order to get through the bliss, I had to move through the terrain, literally in the dream, the the messy bedroom where the bureau with the beautiful light ended up being at the opposite end of the room, had to move through that terrain to get to true joy, true bliss. So that's an example of one of those big dreams that had a message very specifically answered my question. A little more generally gave me a little information on how to start to heal my relationship with my daughter, which was a years-long project and was extremely successful. She's grown into be such a wonderful woman, and our relationship together is just lovely, and I'm so proud of it and her. But then it also gave me part of my path, part of my path as a dream teacher, like teaching me that what I had to show people was how did they get to the other side. You know, we all have to do this journey through the most difficult areas of our life. We can't turn away from them to get to the bliss. We have to, you know, slog through them with the dirty laundry and all. Right. So that's how one of these transcendent dreams will often operate on several levels. They'll have an individual message for you, but probably also something for your bigger path, the bigger picture of your life. And there's an element of lucidity in that dream where you you saw the, the glowing light and you chose to focus on it. Exactly, exactly. So that brings up a lot of the things we were talking about, being an intentional dreamer. I asked for a dream that night, having cultivated awareness in the dream state and cultivated that you start to look for signs that you're in the dream so that you can enter it more fully and more consciously. So, yeah, a little blue light glowing in the corner. That's not usually there. Everything else looks the same. You know, so, ah, I'm in a dream. Let me... You know, let me enter into this. Let me remember my intention. And then when you come out of the dream, not just, oh, I had a dream. Isn't that lovely? Which is actually what I did at first and for weeks and months after. I didn't look at it right away. I was just enjoying the buzz from it. But then let me look. Why Why was it in the bedroom? So the reflection process, it shows so many aspects. And then psychologically, I could also go to what part of my daughter is part of me and all of that and learn even more lessons. And I love the way you you describe the beginning of the dream where you're you're standing at the threshold of your daughter's room. Exactly. And thresholds is is a particularly powerful metaphor because that connects with intention as well. Exactly. Which is really and powerful. Absolutely. I I marvel at dreams and how they're constructed and I agree with you. I mean the location of everything in that dream was so precise. And on one level, so every day. You know, I walk through thresholds every day. But 
reminding me of the power of the threshold, the threshold from conscious to, in this case, from dream consciousness to, you know, awake consciousness. You know, I was waking up in that moment in the dream, the, the threshold of walking into the difficult terrain, carrying the dirty laundry, you know, all the things I haven't yet cleaned up, sorted through in my consciousness, specifically in this case, my relationship with my daughter. Profound, profound. In the Jewish tradition, we have a mezuzah, you know, a sacred scroll on, on each doorway, so that each time we move through a threshold, we're reminded to bring our intention of godliness and the divine with us. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, in the dreams, we're crossing thresholds all the time, and, and that dream was just so beautifully constructed. And one line that I do remember really well from your book was about bringing conscious intention to every time you are at a threshold. Yes, absolutely. Which is such a beautiful way to approach life and everything in it, including dreams. Yes, I mean, each night we're crossing a threshold you know, from one state of consciousness to the other. And then when we wake up, we're crossing another one, another really important crossing to honor each morning, you know. So to take a moment, whether it's just a moment to smile and be grateful, to be waking up again, taking a moment to look back before we look forward, right? Oh, what did I dream? What was my experience? And then move forward into our day. So, yeah, very important moments. So getting back to lucidity and becoming lucid in our dreams. There are people who specialize in lucid dreaming and teach people how to to become more proficient at lucid dreaming. Can you talk about how we can become more lucid in our dreams? I would be more than happy to because I think this is so important. And when I talk about lucid dreaming, before I talk about the hows, I always want to put in a plug for the whys. Why, W-H-Y, and whys, W-I-S-E. Because, again, lucid, lucid dreaming, when you're aware in the dream that you're dreaming, can provide a playground. It can provide an opportunity to just have fun and, like, you can fly, you can choose to have romantic liaisons with whoever you want, you can choose to go travel to exotic locales. You can say, oh, I'm just going to turn this couch upside down because I can. You can do whatever you want. But again, I think it's very important with lucid dreaming. I see lucid dreaming as a spiritual practice and as a source of a lot of great wisdom. So in the past, a lot of the teachings around lucid dreaming were more esoteric. And I think that's because you're entering into a very, very powerful state of consciousness. And we started this conversation talking about how we can create a lot of our reality. So in a sense, I think it was wise to keep some of this knowledge, you know, esoteric so that people didn't accidentally harm themselves or their consciousness by doing things in lucid dreams that are pulling them in the wrong direction, pulling them away from, you know the healing, loving, increased compassion, increased humanity. So I like to ask people to just, like, take it seriously or take it with the right dose of reverence. Although you don't have to. You you know, everybody can lucid dream if they want to. So that said, I encourage people to really go into lucid dreaming, thinking about why do I want to do this? What's my overall goal? 
And then I want to recommend a book by Robert Wagoner, W-A-G-G-O-N-E-R, Robert Wagoner, about lucid dreaming. And he has two books. Either one of them is great. I think the first one is Lucid Dreaming, Gateway to the Self. I don't have it in front of me. And then the other one is by Holsek, H-O-L-E-C-E-K, Andrew Holsek. Anyway, there are a lot of great books, but these are two of my favorite authors on lucid dreaming at the moment. So you can review techniques. Robert Wagoner's is much more secular, and Holsek's is more based on Tibetan dream yoga. So the how-to, for me, one of the, the best ways to become lucid in dreaming is to, during the day, start to ask yourself the simple question, am I awake or am I dreaming? So, you know, try to ask that question to yourself several times a day. And for me to make this successful, it matters when I ask it. So anytime I see something at all surprising during the day, could be something as little as, we have ladybugs right now in our house, so a ladybug drops into my water. That's a good opportunity. Just something out of the ordinary happens. Am I awake or dreaming? And then the next important thing to do is not answer the question right away, but give it some thought. Because when you're awake, the answer is obvious. You know, I know I'm awake. I know I'm not dreaming right now. But you have to train yourself so that when you're in the dream state, you're going to ask the same question. Something surprising will happen in the dream. These opportunities are offered up to us almost every night in our dreams. So something unusual happens, and within the dream, you ask that question because you've trained yourself to do it during the day. Am I awake or dreaming? And because you practice in the day, stopping to consider the question instead of just giving a rote answer, you'll do the same asleep and dreaming. You're training yourself. So you really have to stop and consider, am I awake or dreaming? And some ways that you can tell, and I encourage you to do this during the day so that you'll practice doing it asleep. Check your wristwatch if you're wearing one. Check the time. Look away. Look back at the wristwatch. If it's a dream or a clock, if it's a dream, the time's not going to progress in any kind of normal way. You'll look at the clock once, and it'll say 3.03. You'll glance away, look back, and it'll say, you know, spin a top and dance on your head. I mean, it'll just do something totally different. It won't be progressing normally. So you do what's called a state check after you ask the question. Look at the watch or look at the floor and see if the pattern of the rug or the carpet is consistent. If it's a dream, it'll probably, there'll be a break somewhere. It won't be totally consistent. If you're awake, uh, it should be consistent. So you do a little state check, and then if you do this while you're awake and then do the same thing as sleep and dreaming, you'll get the right answer when you're asleep and dreaming. Oh, no, this has to be a dream because in my daughter's bedroom, there's not a blue light glowing on the bureau, right? This has to be a dream because in my kitchen... There's not a green countertop. There's a red one. So you train yourself to recognize that you're dreaming when you're dreaming. So then the next step, I've heard that that some people have problems with when they initially realize that they are actually dreaming and they're yeah. aware that they're dreaming, that they're ejected from the dream yes. immediately. So what happens is you get all excited. Oh, my God, I did it. I'm lucid dreaming. And that rush of emotion and excitement knocks you right out of the dream. So that's where meditation comes in. Practice meditation when you're awake. Practice mindfulness. 
so you can calm your mind, uh, calm your emotions so that you can stay in the dream. That's one of the best things to do. Another thing to do is to focus on something like your hand. You know, look at your hand and focus on it in the dream. Try to get yourself stable. Try to stay there. It's a practice. You really, it's, it's a practice. And it's very powerful because you learn to be mindful. I think of it as being mindful, awake and asleep. So the same thing is true when you're awake right now. Are you awake or dreaming? Well, you know you're awake because your eyes are open and, you know, you have a strong ego sense. So you know that this isn't a dream. You're not psychotic. But are you really awake? Are you awake and alive to the experience of being alive? And you practice knowing that awake. And you more practice that when you're sleeping dreaming. Because when you become lucid, that rush of emotion that can knock you out of it is this absolutely exciting, beautiful moment when you're aware of the fragility of the state of consciousness, you're aware of how fragile it is, like, this is amazing. I am aware and awake in the dream. All this possibility is now open to me. It's a glorious feeling. And so if you can tap into that feeling when you're awake right now in this moment, wow, I am in this amazing, fragile moment you know, life and death are so close to each other, but I am alive right now, and there's an array of possibility. So whether or not in my life I can make broad changes, I might be constrained by economics or class or culture or, you know, racism or whatever, but what I can, the possibilities that are open to me right now are the possibilities of consciousness, how I choose to perceive, to react to what's in my environment. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And it also reminded me how difficult it is for most of us to stay present in the moment. That yes, that it doesn't that, last very long. That is true, and yeah. that is why I approach sleep and dreams as a mindfulness practice. Because mindfulness practice awake helps us to be aware and awake in the moment, and to stay in the moment. It's practice. All this is practice. We. We can build all these skills. We can build all these muscles. We can build the muscle of remembering more dreams, of getting more clear in our dreams, of creating more stability of consciousness in our dreams. Whether we become lucid or not, we can start having a more stable environment in our dreams where we stay in one scene longer until we're done with it, until it plays out, see the dream more clearly. And then the same awake. We practice meditation. We practice mindfulness. So for me, this is a constant wheel of consciousness that we ride day and night. And these are skills we can build. It's not a passive experience to be alive. Mm-hmm. And again, to bring back the importance of also developing the muscle of remembering to bring or at least revisit our intention in entering into any activity or crossing of any threshold. Exactly. Well said, yep. So bringing in the intention, you know, meditation teachers sometimes say good in the beginning, good in the middle, good at the end. Just a reminder to check in at the beginning, what's my good intention in the middle and at the end of every activity, every activity, a meal, a class, a conversation, you know, check in with that intention, beginning, middle and end. I'm wondering 
what you think of the in-between states between sleeping and waking. There's the hypnagogic and then there's the hypnopompic states. And when I was a child, I went through a phase where I was having a lot of very powerful experiences, particularly as I was falling asleep. What do you have to offer about that in relation to this conversation? Yes, well, the hypnogogic, the one where you're falling asleep, so both are transition states from waking to sleep, hypnogogia, and sleep to waking, the hypnopompic end of it. They're both transition states, and we've been talking a lot about moving through transitions. It's a great mindfulness activity to try to prolong, specifically the hypnogogic state, falling asleep, because hypnopompic we tend to have less consciousness of. But we really can practice in that hypnagogic sleep, actually going straight from being awake to dreams. You know, technically we have to wait 90 minutes for our first REM sleep cycle where most dreams take place. But you can go straight into dreams by riding that hypnagogic wave straight into dreams. And that's a very interesting way to enter into a lucid dream. So it's a state of consciousness that the more we become aware of it, uh, we can use it as a practice ground, a practice ground of hovering in that state of consciousness between wake and dreaming, which is a very powerful state because you have, just as in lucid dreaming, some of your waking brain's capacity for volition, for presence and awareness, quote-unquote awake consciousness, and the creative brew of dreaming consciousness. So I sense that that's a very similar dream state. I have also done shamanic journeys, a very similar state where it's a sort of malleable, powerful moment of consciousness. And I say malleable because it feels like things are expanding and condensing. You can sort of watch images appear and disappear, dissipate. You can really watch the mind at work in a certain sense. I guess I don't have anything all that clear and cohesive to say about it, except that it's a great practice ground. So if you can practice hovering in that state of hypnagogia, a lot of people find it very uncomfortable. But if you approach it as sort of a mindfulness practice and as a practice of entering straight into the dream, it can be very fruitful. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been really wonderful. I thank you so much for your time. And would you like to share any contact information? I would love to. So I would love to encourage people to look up my book, The Mindful Way to a Good Night's Sleep, and also my book, Joy in Every Moment, although it's not specifically about sleep and dreams. It's also about my uh, take on everyday mindfulness and, you know, good ways to bring it into day and night. And then you can find me at my website, which is siviagover.com. The trickiest part of that is the spelling of my name. E-Z-I, V as in Victor, I-A, Gover, G-O-V-E-R dot com. Or you can find me at the Institute for Dream Studies, where I teach people to become professional dream workers and also hold online workshops and classes about sleep and dreams. Well, thank you again so much. This has been a real pleasure. Well, it's my pleasure, Tonio.
that was Sivia Gover. She is the author of The Mindful Way to a Good Night's Sleep, How to Use Dream Work, Meditation, and Journaling to Sleep Deeply and Wake Up Well. She's also the director of the Institute for Dream Studies. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, community radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. share with you one of my real passions, which is uh, the world of sleep and dream. Um, and I think this is really our first exploration into a topic that Ken intimated when he said, you know, we're going to show you some practices that will introduce you to states of consciousness, yes? So this may be one that surprises you. Um, and I think it's a, 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 a fantastic way to look at um, dark retreat, look at the eve, the evening, the night in an entirely new way and to bring this otherwise unconscious state of existence into conscious awareness. So what I want to do tonight is, is contextualize the practice a little bit to give you some idea of its importance in Buddhism. And I will share a little bit about um, nighttime techniques, things that you can do tonight. And then maybe tomorrow in my afternoon presentation I'll give you some daytime techniques because the daytime techniques are just as important as the nighttime ones. So each and every night when we go to sleep, whether we know it or not, we take a tour. We descend, whatever metaphor you want to use, we descend from the gross realm, gross level of consciousness, in through the subtle level of consciousness, very subtle levels of, um, you could say even causal, non-dual. And then of course every morning we kind of recapitulate that we reverse that and, and rise to so-called waking consciousness. So every night when we go to sleep, we have the opportunity to explore these levels of uh, extraordinarily subtle levels of heart and mind, um, which, by the way, parenthetically, will be of enormous benefit to us when we die, according to the Buddhist tradition, because dream yoga in Buddhism came about as a way to prepare for death. So every night when we go to sleep, and Ken talks about this, this, um, this idea of recapitulation, or the theory, theory of recapitulation, every night when we go to sleep, it's a concordant experience of what's referred to as the bardo of dying. When we descend into deep, brainless sleep, that's a con concordant experience of what's called the luminous bardo or dharmata, which in fact is the enlightened state. So whether we know it or not, we descend into that every night when we fall asleep. And if we're very sensitive to it between each, the rising and cessation of each and every thought. Um, Morpheus, the god of sleep, I'm, I'm sorry, the god of dream. Thanatos, the god of death, are twins. They're twin brothers. And who's the father? Who's Papa? Hypnos, the god of sleep. Sleep is just a cold word for ignorance. So it is ignorance that gives birth to both dream and death. And by transcending ignorance, we transcend both of these, or we at least bring both of them onto the path. So according to both Vajrayana Buddhism, which I'm a student of, and Advaita Vedanta, we actually have it all backwards. 
This so-called waking state, because it's the most dualistic, is actually this is the state where we are most asleep. And if we become aware of it as we descend into subtle and extremely subtle levels of mind every night, we're descending into greater and greater levels of non-dual awareness. So in deep dreamless sleep, where for most of us, and I'll talk maybe just a little bit about what's called sleep yoga, there is a practice for deep sleep, we're actually in the most non-dual elevated state, if we're aware of it. And then when we wake up into this so-called waking reality, we're actually the most asleep. We actually have it backwards. And these practices allow us to see that and then bring the insight from the deep dreamless state into waking consciousness. So dream yoga together is, is part of the Vajrayana teachings. And one of the really interesting things about Vajrayana that really resonates with integral theory altogether is Vajrayana really is integral Buddhism in the sense that, integral in the sense of integrated, it brings absolutely everything onto the path. A synonym for Vajrayana is Upayayana, the vehicle of skillful means. And what this means is there is literally no state that is not brought to bear um, onto the path of awakening. Sleep, dream, death, sex. There are yogas and practices associated with each and every one of these so that we can basically, if we so decide, practice 24-7. And the practices I'll give to you tonight, I mean, think about it. We spend about a third of our lives in sleep, a state of awareness or consciousness that we know very little about. So theoretically, if you live to be 90 years old and, and you could bring you know, a level of practice to a third of your life, think of what you could do with 30 extra years. But this is very tricky because, you know, in, in, a, in a very deep sense, sleep, i.e. ignorance, is ego's ultimate refuge. So ego doesn't want to go here. Um, and there'll be a very deep part of you every night if you engage in this practice that will sooner or later say, and this is why um, dream yoga, the moniker for dream yoga is called the measure of the path. In this regard, it's resonant with even psychological thought. Dreams and dream yoga are truth tellers. And I promise you, and this is a, a very uh, important thing to know, is that dream yoga will reveal your passion for ignorance. It will show you that at a certain point, I don't want to go this far in waking up. As my teacher, Pundit Rinpoche, says, I would prefer to be stupid. Thank you. So it's helpful to know that, so that when we feel resistance to this practice, we bring a sense of humor to it, a sense of levity. Otherwise, if the practice becomes too heavy-handed, we simply won't do it. There has to be a light touch to this particular practice. So dream yoga itself is not the same as lucid dreaming. Do you know what lucid dreaming is? A quick poll. I always do this. How many people here have had a lucid dream? Yeah, that's fantastic. And how many people here have meditated? Yeah. So there's, you know, my studies have shown in informal polls like this show me that there's a direct proportion, uh, direct proportionality between meditators and those who um, have uh, increased likelihood of lucidity in dreams. Because really you're working with the same type of phenomenology. And we'll talk about this tomorrow. Every time we're distracted with a thought, it's the same expression of ignorance happening in a microgenetic form. So by becoming lucid to the contents of our own mind now, which by the way, um, at least one neuroscientist has said that we are aware, most people, untrained, we are aware of less than 90, 90, 99% of what takes place in our mind. In other words, we're only aware, we're only lucid to about 1% of the contents of our own mind. And as Kabir said of death, we can say of dream, what is found then is found now. So as we become lucid to our states of consciousness now, and tomorrow we'll talk about this in terms of the daily practice, as we wake up to the contents of our mind now, we will naturally wake up to the contents of our mind and dream. So with that said, let me give you some tips. Nighttime practices. What we're going to be doing with, with dream yoga is we're working with um, several laws of karma. 
And the first of these laws is, is referred to as the law of proximate karma, which is the second of four laws, pardon the interjection, but I want to give some substantiation to this, where this comes from. Um, at any moment of transition, there are four laws of karma in operation. This means you know, moment to moment, um, life to life, sleep to dream to waking. And of these four laws of transitional karma, the one that we have the most control over, which is utilized in dream yoga, it's used in bardo yoga, it's used in pure land teachings, is what's called the law of proximate karma. And the way I like to think of this is a play on Allen Ginsberg's idea, you may have heard of it, first thought, best thought, which refers to kind of the freshness of the present moment um, before second thought comes in. The law of proximate karma is really last thought, best thought. And what this means is that the last thought you have on your mind um, in a preceding, succeeding moment of consciousness has a direct and immediate impact on the succeeding moment of consciousness. We know this through associative processes. So this is something that we have um, direct control over. So what we do here, we take advantage of it. So what, we, what this means is when you're going to sleep, and this also involves the use of uh, another very, very powerful law of karma, which is the law of intention. What you want to do is you want to really feel it. Don't just flap your lips. Really feel it with your heart. Tonight, I will have many dreams. Tonight, I will have good dreams. Tonight, I will become lucid in my dreams. And if you do that, it's almost like gift wrapping a, a, a package for you so that when you des descend through the membrane of sleep, this last thought can actually seed your dream state and then lucidity becomes really kind of instantaneous as a consequence of that. So this is something that we can do very, very easily. So what I do when I go to sleep, very simple, I lie down on my back, I settle myself, I breathe 21 times, I count, because you want to settle. You want to settle your breathing. And then what I'll do is I'll roll over on the right side. This is called the sleeping lion mudra, sleeping lion posture. This is considered the best posture in which to sleep, dream, and die. This is the posture the Buddha took when he died. And it's very interesting because what it does, it, it employs um, the subtle body, which is where subtle states of consciousness are supported. And by lying down on the right side, what you're doing is you're blocking off the channels that are associated with masculine, outgoing, kind of waking consciousness. It's called sun-poison prana. And if you're really into it, if you really want to do this, what you do also is then you place your thumb on your right nostril and you actually block that nostril off. And it serves to pinch off this particular um, channel. It then opens the channel, the feminine channel on the left side, it's called moon nectar prana. And this is the type of mode, the feminine mode, that you want to um, have your mind and heart bathed in as you sleep, dream, and die. Because really, in a very deep sense, when you enter these very subtle states of consciousness, you're returning to the primordial mother. You're returning to the great mother Prajnaparamita, which is a feminine quality of awareness. So then the second thing you want to do is, and again, this employs um, this kind of subtle body anatomy and physiology, which again is, a, is the substrate. This is what supports subtle states of mind. You want to bring your awareness to your throat. And the reason you want to do this, this is very interesting, because according to the inner yoga systems, consciousness is dictated by where these, um, they're called mind drops or bindus. Um, according to the inner tantras, Kala Chakra Tantra and others, is that consciousness is dictated um, physiologically where these bindus accrete. So right now, most of us are awake. I know some people are dozing off. But most of us, our bindus are gathered in our head center. That constitutes waking consciousness. When we fall into deep dreamless sleep, these mind drops go to the heart. When we wake up, semi-wake up in the dream, they arise in the throat. 
So we can take advantage of this process by bringing our awareness consciously to our throat. Because as it says, is where the mind goes, the winds go. Where the winds go, the, pra- the bindus go, the mind drops. Where the bindus go, consciousness goes. So you can become so facile in this process. Stephen LeBerge talks about it. He's probably the, the preeminent academic writer on lucidity in the Western world. And he talks about a very interesting process, the acronym of which is compelling. It's called um, waking-induced lucid dreaming, the acronym of which is WILD. And it really is WILD. Um, so very advanced dream yoga practitioners can literally, through the power of the subtle body practices, the inner yogas, which constitute one-third of Vajrayana practice, you can so powerfully direct your mind essence to your throat that you can go into, into dreaming consciousness within a matter of seconds almost. And if you can do that, you're instantly lucid. So this is a very interesting thing to do. And one way to play with this that's very fun is imagine, and this is the classic dream yoga instruction, is visualize a red four-petaled lotus. Because this is the heart chakra, the samboka chakra. This is where consciousness goes when we sleep. And what you do here is you simply go to sleep, bring your awareness to this red chakra, and as you are going to sleep, you, you can just kind of trace out the chakra at your throat level. And what this does is it serves as a kind of dimmer. Because most of the time when we go to sleep, we're kind of aware, you know, semi-aware, we're dropping down, you know, the light is still more or less on, and all of a sudden, boom, it's off. We've lost it. So by working with this subtle lotus uh, visualization at the throat, it's like a light dimmer. You're actually dimming your consciousness volitionally as you step it down into deep dreamless sleep. And you can become so facile with this, it's almost like a type of self-hypnosis, that you can literally, as I alluded to earlier, step your consciousness down from waking consciousness to dreaming consciousness. And if you you do that, you've automatically mastered the art of dream yoga. So there's so many things to say. One of the things that we're doing here is we're, in addition to bringing the bindus down, is we're, in the double sense of this phrase, we're unwinding, we're unwinding. Right now when we're awake and if we're, if we're too stressed out, you know, the, the winds and everything are concentrated here, we're all wound up. And when you sit in meditation and your mind is going ballistic, it's too windy. That's the basis of insomnia. So when we go to sleep, we unwind, we unwind. And by again dropping down into our bodies, the winds drop down. This is a very powerful way to work with insomnia, by the way. In the middle of the night, you can transform an otherwise unwanted experience and bring it onto your own path. So there's so much more to say. I'll say a little bit more about tomorrow. The last thing I want to say, in the event that you have a lucid dream tonight, what do you do when you're lucid? Because lucidity in itself will not lead you to a spiritual awakening. In fact, lucidity can lead to supersamsara. So dream yoga is where you engage your mind in the dream state. And a very simple thing you can do, it's very easy. The first thing I do is just go for a flight. Just fly around. It's very easy to do. The next thing that I do, and this is a very revealing thing, and it's also another instance of truth-telling, is try to walk through a wall, a dream wall. Has anybody tried to do this in a lucid dream? Or try to put your hand through a wall. This is the, kind of the second, second stage of dream yoga practice. This is extraordinarily revealing, truth-telling, because very often, even though you're fully lucid and you know you're lucid, you will come up to the wall and you still will not be able to walk through it or put your hand through it. It reveals your propensity for reification. It reveals that even in the state where you know it's an illusion, you still, by the power of habit, think it to be real. But if you stay with it, you will eventually walk through it. And a very fun trick here is if you're going to walk through the wall, you can't go through it forward, turn around and walk backwards because you don't know when you're going to hit it. 
So then what you do is you walk through the dream wall and you can see it coming forward. One very brief comment about sleep yoga, um, just to kind of complete the cycle. And Ken talks about it in his book, One Taste. You can develop a a 24-7 type of awareness where you're constant consciousness. You actually never fall asleep. Buddhas, historical Buddhas by definition, Shakyamuni Buddha, all the awakened ones, they literally, their bodies may rest in order to kind of um, integrate the elements, but their consciousness never turns off. That kind of awareness never turns off. So deep sleep practice is where you come to rest in the center of the heart. And the best analogy I've come up with here, and then I will stop, is this light of awareness is on all the time. The best analogy I've come up with is if you could somehow be like the movie Gravity, if you could somehow be thrown into outer space, whether we know it or not, in outer deep space, the light of a trillion suns is streaming through that space. Think of the light of awareness within our heart. This is always there. But unless an object is placed in that light, no thing is seen. So even though awareness is that which sees, you can't see awareness. So this is why we don't see deep, dreamless sleep. This light of consciousness, this light of awareness is always on. But unless we become familiar, we become familiar with our nature as formless awareness, as the Dharmakaya. When consciousness turns off and wisdom turns on, if we're not familiar with it, what does consciousness do? It blacks out. So by becoming familiar with this really formless, indestructible Dharmakaya nature of our own heart-mind, this is when you start having success in sleep yoga. And at that point, you literally, every night, you literally stay completely awake. And then from there, there's all kinds of wonderful, magical things you can do. Maybe we can discuss that a little bit tomorrow. Um, But I think that's probably enough for now. I'm sorry if I went a little bit on, but I get excited about this thing. So, um, pleasant dreams. That was Andrew Holsek. He's from the Tibetan Buddhist dream yoga tradition. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour.
story. But that's why I'm here. To tell you stories. It's a story. But that's why I'm here. To tell you stories. It's a story. But that's why I'm here. To tell you stories. WGDH in Hardwick or WGDR.org.
And that's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, sweet dreams and have a wonderful week.